Hello, everybody. Welcome to the middle of the week version of From the Boardroom to the Locker Room. It's Wednesday all around the world. It's six o'clock in Southern Africa. And wherever you are, look at your watch and you'll know exactly what time it is. I'll tell you what time it is. It's the uniform time for from the boardroom to the locker room, wherever you are. Now, generally, Tuesday, Wednesdays, and Thursdays, we have guests on our program. But because of the finality, if you like, into the final month of the Premier League, we've had so many requests from our listeners, podcast family, if you like, to talk about what's going on and where we are and what all the permutations are. So that's exactly what I'm going to do for you this evening after last night's matches, as well as looking forward to the matches the rest of the week. Let us start with the news that Arsenal fans are delighted to be hearing this morning. And that was when they woke up this morning, they found out if they didn't watch last night that their team are back on top of the Premier League. Now, they are there by virtue of a 3-1 win against what I can only describe as an absolutely awful Chelsea side. They have spent so much money, have uh, Chelsea, on their team this season. And the return, unfortunately, is completely wasted, as far as I'm concerned. Now, Mikel Arteta's side, Arsenal lost control of the title race when they were beaten 4-1 by Manchester City. However, they signaled their intention to push City all the way to the wire. It was a much-needed first win of five games that they have to win. And even if they do and Man City win all their games, well, unfortunately for Arsenal fans, it is just uh, one month too far, if you like, because it's the last month of April and into the month of May that has basically scuppered their hopes of that title. They had it in their hands, even before the Manchester City game, if they had not thrown away 2-0 leads previous to that, they would still be top of the table, even at the current situation. And then if they would have won all their games, even after losing to Manchester City, mathematically, they could have still been champions. Anyway, it was Gabriel Jesus, along with Odegaard's two goals, that set them into a three-goal lead before halftime at the Emirates Stadium. And uh, Odegaard scored again. Arsenal are now two points clear of second-place City. While Pep Guardiola's men remain the favourites to win the title, the North Londoners keep applying as much pressure as they can on the um, home side, but obviously on the Manchester City team. Now, it's 52 days and counting since Chelsea last won a football match. Can you believe it? And 10 weeks at the top of the table, Arsenal were knocked down to second place by City's win at Fulham, they're back at the top now. Three successive draws, two blown uh, goal leads, the calamitous loss to City, and Arsenal are written off as title race chokers. However, Mikel Arteta insisted that the title was still winnable, and his players responded to his running cry last night against the troubled Chelsea, who were ideal opponents for Arsenal to get back on track, played Newcastle now, the Blues, that's Chelsea, if you don't know, have lost all six games since Frank Lampard returned as caretaker boss to replace the sacked Graham Potter. I wonder what Mr. Potter's thinking uh, while he sits at home and watches this calamitous uh, series of results. What was the point of him being fired? But then again, and I don't know this, and I don't think anybody will except, of course, Chelsea and Mr. Potter, um, I guess there was a 
a decent sized payouts when he left. So I guess as much as he would love to still be managing a team, he'll get his chance. He's a very good manager. I just think he had the wrong players, the wrong combination of players. I don't think it's the wrong players. I well, they bought big names, but it's not always big names that work together. Look at Leicester City. They had no big names except for eventually Jamie Vardy and Harry Maguire, really, in their team when they won the Premier League at 5,000 to 1. Chelsea now 12th on a nine-game windless run in all competitions and faced the prospect of failing to finish in the top half of the Premier League for the first time since 1996. Now, you might say that the war in Ukraine has got something to do with that, and you might be wondering why I say that. Well, obviously, when the war broke out in Ukraine and Russia attacked Ukraine, the Russian billionaires around the world were sanctioned because of Vladimir Putin's decision to attack Ukraine. And one of those is Roman Abramovich. Now, he, of course, was... What at the time was regarded as the iron fist of Chelsea, well, he had to give up his uh, stake in Chelsea. And since then, the American billionaires have come in and they have completely messed the whole system up. Very disappointing indeed. I remember when I was in the UK in 1999 and Chelsea was starting to get back as a side out of the what was then first division and second division and they managed to get promotion up Dennis Wise and a couple of other players from the old Wimbledon crazy gang and now look at them now oh my goodness the former Arsenal Pierre Emerick of my young made his first Chelsea start since the Blues lost to the Gunners in November of last year but his four-year spell with Arsenal which ended acrimoniously in 2022 never had a chance of exacting revenge on his own team before he was hauled off at half-time. Chelsea's implosion saw Cesar Azbuqueta gift Arsenal a golden opportunity in the opening moments. His woeful header was intercepted, and uh, a close-range effort was eventually saved by their goalkeeper. So that is last night's result. What does that last result last night do to the top of the Premier League? As I mentioned, they have now gone back to the top of the table have Arsenal. They have 78 points. I always say points in the bag are of the utmost importance rather than having games in hand. However, the way Manchester City are playing with Erling Haaland scoring goals, he's actually scored more goals this Premier League season than I've had hot breakfasts in the last two years. Uh, 76 points for Manchester City. 78 points for Arsenal, 34 games played. So Arsenal have four games left in the season, and Manchester City have six. Why am I mentioning that? Well, four games to the 28th of May, as opposed to six games, well, excluded in those six games, added to those six games, I might add, are a minimum of two matches in the Champions League in the semi-finals. So there's eight games that uh, Manchester City have to play in the next 25 days. 25 days, eight games. That's some serious, serious amount of football. Now, Arsenal fans will be saying to themselves, I hope, I hope that all Pep Guardiola has on his mind is the Champions League. Because remember, that's the only trophy that he hasn't won with Manchester City. 
when he was in his job in previous clubs, he won all of them. He won everything. But under Man City, he has not, neither has Man City ever won the Champions League or the European Cup, as it was called before. So with most probably eight games still to play, which definitely eight games still to play in this month of May, is fatigue going to creep in, bearing in mind that they've played more games the only team that's played more games than them is Manchester United. Um, so it's going to be a very, very tricky couple of weeks, four weeks, in fact, for Manchester City. And Arsenal fans will be hoping that is what might get them back in contention for the Premier League. Mathematically, they definitely are still in the title race. So let's have a look at the fixtures that Manchester City have over the next couple of days. So their full schedule as far as Manchester City are concerned. Tonight, we'll discuss it in a bit, they play West Ham. Okay, That's uh, going to be a home game against West Ham. Shouldn't be too much of a tricky encounter. Then on Saturday, they have to play Leeds United at home. Both West Ham and Leeds are teams that are struggling, but battling tooth and nail to stay out of the relegation zone. So there is an absolute must-win situation for both of them. But if the form books say anything, Manchester City should win both of those games. Then it starts getting even worse for them in terms of the amount of matches that they have to play because they then go away to Everton on the 14th of May. That is another massive game. So they're now playing West Ham, Leeds and Everton. All three of those teams are scraping for points and will pretty much do almost anything that they can to get a result. Then we move a little further ahead to the matches on Sunday, the 21st of May. Bearing in mind during the week there, they've got those Champions League semi-finals. And then they are at home on the 21st of May to Chelsea, which the way Chelsea are playing at the moment, you can put three points in the bank. Then they play on Wednesday, the 24th of May. They go to Brighton and Hove Albion, who themselves are still battling for a place in Europe. And then on Sunday, the 28th of May, they go away to Brentford. So those are the matches that Manchester City have left in the season. Plus, of course, the two matches against Real Madrid in the semi-finals of the Champions League. Those are their eight games. So, what do Arsenal have? Let's have a look. So, on Saturday, Arsenal are on a bye because they play on Sunday. So, no game for Arsenal till Sunday. Good rest for them. Half past five Sunday evening, they take on high-flying Newcastle. Tough trip for Arsenal because Newcastle are on a very good run at the moment, and they are looking for third place in the Premier League, battling away with Manchester United. Then the Arsenal continue to have a lovely break until their next game, a week later, on Sunday the 14th of May, when they're at home to Brighton and Hove Albion. Another nice break for the Gunners as they travel away to the city ground on the 20th of May, to take on the relegation-fighting Nottingham Forest. And then on the final day of the uh, season, 
the Arsenal are at home to Wolverhampton Wanderers. So you would clearly think that outside of the Newcastle United game, which is clearly their most difficult still to come, after last night's game against Chelsea, which was nowhere near as difficult as they might have thought it was going to be, they pretty much have a very, very easy run in compared to Manchester City, who are playing a couple of teams that are scraping for bits and pieces all over the place. Now, is the situation with regards to the matches tonight? Let me tell you, there are a couple of games, not just tonight, tonight and tomorrow night. So shall we start with Manchester City. They're unbeaten in 14 Premier League games against West Ham. They've won 11 and drawn three. The last time they lost to them was in September 2015. It was a 2-1 home defeat. West Ham have taken just four points from their 16 Premier League games against Man City at the Etihad Stadium. They conceded at least once in every single visit to the ground. Their last top-flight clean sheet away against the Citizens was a 1-0 win at Main Road in April 2003 when David James was in goal. My goodness. So that is where you would expect a win for Manchester City. That's, of course, the game tonight against West Ham. Liverpool are also in action and they're winless in their last three Premier League games against Fulham. They've drawn two and lost one. Only once have they had a longer run without a win against them in league competition. That was four games between February 1966 and December 1967. I'm sure there are people listening who weren't even born then. Fulham have won just two of their 29 away league games against Liverpool. They've drawn seven and lost 20. However, those victories have come in their last five visits to Anfield, including a 1-0 win in their last such match in March 2021. Now, just for your interest sake, between 1949 and 2018, Fulham won just one of their 55 away league games against the Everton and Liverpool sides from Merseyside, drawing 11 and losing 43. Since then, the Cottagers have won their last three games on Merseyside. Liverpool have won 14 of their last 16 midweek Premier League games, winning all seven at Anfield in that run. And they have won their last eight, specifically on Wednesdays, scoring 22 goals and conceding just three. And then the other game still to come this week, Brighton and Hove Albion. Well, they've won their last two Premier League games against Manchester United. They've never won three league games in a row against them before, nor have they ever done the double over the Red Devils. Manchester United have lost three of their five Premier League games against Brighton at the Amex. It's their highest loss rate at any ground they've played at more than once in the competition. Manchester United have won just one of their last 13 Premier League away games against sides starting the day in the top half of the table. They beat Fulham 2-1 in November. They've also failed to keep a clean sheet in any of these 13 games since beating Spurs 3-0 in October 2021. So let's just recap those fixtures for you. Still to come this week, tonight, Liverpool against Fulham and Manchester City against West Ham. Then tomorrow night, it's Brighton against Manchester United. And then matches thick and fast on the weekend. Saturday, sees Spurs against Crystal Palace, London Derby there. Wolves against Aston Villa, Bournemouth against Chelsea, Manchester City against Leeds and Liverpool, who play tonight, play again on Saturday against Brentford. And then Sunday, Newcastle versus Arsenal and an 8 o'clock game on Sunday evening 
when West Ham take on Manchester United. Wow. What a week of Premier League footballing action we are looking forward to. So we've still got a bit of time. Have a little chat about some of the other sporting businesses that have gone on over the last 24 hours. And the one that's interested me the most is the decision by the UCI, that is cycling's governing body. They have defended their policy on transgender athletes competing in female events after an American transgender athlete, Austin Phillips, filled the debate by winning the Tour of Gila in New Mexico this weekend. The 27-year-old won the fifth and final stage of the race to become the first transgender cyclist to triumph in an official UCI race. Now, unlike other sporting bodies, such as the World Athletics, the UCI allows transgender riders to compete in women's races, which has prompted criticism from the likes of American former Olympian Inga Thompson, who said the decision was effectively killing off women's cycling. Thompson referred on Twitter to a survey last year by Leading Riders Union, which showed that over 90% of professional women cyclists opposed racing against transgender athletes, but she said their voices were not being heard. It's been reported that the Cyclists' Professional Association, which represents men's and women's riders, had conducted the survey of their female members before making representation on the subject to the UCI. In a statement released yesterday, the UCI acknowledged that transgender athletes may wish to compete in accordance with their gender identity. The UCI rules are based on the latest scientific knowledge and have been applied in a consistent manner. The UCA continues to follow the evolution of scientific findings and may change its rules in the future as scientific knowledge evolves. Very interesting indeed. Now, the UCI toughened its rules for transgender women to compete in events last year, halving the maximum permitted plasma testosterone level to 2.5 nanomoles per liter and doubling the transition period to 24 months. Now, Calypso began racing in 2019 and said she had been the subject of a week of nonsense on the internet. I love my peers and competitors and I'm grateful for every opportunity I get to learn and grow as a person and athlete on course together. British Cycling changed their rules last year to ban transgender women from elite races pending a full review. Now, this is definitely a subject that has a lot of pros and cons with regards to whether we should or we shouldn't allow transgender athletes and DSD athletes, et cetera, et cetera, to compete in events. So, for example, a transgender athlete who was a man and is now no longer a man, and I don't know how it all works, to be perfectly honest with you. I couldn't think of anything worse than having my private parts cut off to become a woman. Only horses get gelded, so and I'm not a not a horse. But anyway, having said all of that, what really does surprise me the most is that when we're talking about cycling, I mean, cycling has been so gripped in the whole drugs and Lance Armstrong and people doing blood transfusions in the evening and adding white blood cells and oxygen to blood cells and taking anabolic steroids and people being caught and banned and whatever, just so, so so confused by the fact that cycling of all the sports is actually allowing this to happen. I mean, 
I know I'm simplifying it here, and shoot me down if you like. You're very welcome to. Um, but you know what? If you're born a South African, you're a South African. It doesn't matter whether you go and live somewhere else and you get your nationality in England or in the United States and you change the color of your passport or whatever. You can't take away the fact that you were born in South Africa. And I think, simplistically, if I may say, if you're born a man, you're a man. If you're born a woman, you're a woman. I mean, is that just too simplistic? Anyway, let me move away from that subject now because uh, you never know. There might be some people that I am not intentionally. I promise you, I am not making a joke of it. I'm really not. And I just don't want to be offending anybody. Maybe I need to keep some of my thoughts to myself. Although that's not really why you listen to this podcast, is it? Because you actually quite like hearing my thoughts from the reaction that I've had. And thank you for your reaction. Anyway, lastly, but not least, more short-term and more severe pain for a long-term gain. Sounds like my father. Anyway, it's not. That is South African rugby. They have released their report, an integrated report and financial statement for the 2022 year at the annual general meeting. And they've confirmed that the well-known truth that the move to Europe is an expensive yet necessary one. There really was little other choice for the governing body and their franchises after New Zealand essentially kicked South Africa out of Super Rugby in a move that many people believe has hurt Kiwi rugby more than it's hurt South African rugby. Nonetheless, the speed at which SA Rugby was able to get the Bulls, the Lions, the Sharks and the Stormers into Europe and the URC at the expense of the generally unlucky cheaters means that concessions need to be made. SA Rugby will not become a full shareholder in the tournament until late 2024, meaning it gets no income from the revenue generated by the tournament. Instead, they pay an annual participation fee that's eventually converted into shareholding after four years of which two years are close to being completed. So for 2022, let's make it easy for you. It meant that SA Rugby forked out 330 million rand, which included the international travel and accommodation arrangements for the franchises and no discernible financial reward. Now, despite shifting some of those costs to the franchise this season, a sponsorship with Qatar Airways to alleviate that burden has led to one of the defining themes of the new season, SA Team's travel chaos, where journeys that last 24 hours some having to go to Europe via Doha in economy class. SA Rugby still bears the cost of local teams reaching the playoffs of the URC and Champions or Challenge Cups. Hopefully, the two years will go very quickly and we will start earning some revenue for South African rugby. That is tonight's edition of From the Boardroom to the Locker Room. Join us again tomorrow evening when... My friend and guest and expert on Formula One matters, Hendrik Fivut, joins us as we five races into the Formula One season. We'll talk about the changes, the new rules that have been adopted with regards to sprint races and the remarkable form of Fernando Alonso. I can't wait to hear what his thoughts are on all of that. Until next time, be nice to each other. Bye for now.